Daniel chapter 9, if you've got your Bible, uh, Daniel chapter 9, I want to turn there once more. I want to go to Daniel chapter 9 at least one more time before we move on. And in the coming weeks, we'll be finishing up our study through the book of Daniel, which has lasted the latter part, the better part of six months or so. But the last couple of weeks in particular, we've been in chapter 9, which is a chapter on prophecy, uh, deals with the future. And you know, for the most part, people are interested when it comes to knowing the future. I read somewhere uh, that Americans, on average, spend around a billion dollars a year on psychics, horoscopes, palm readers, that kind of thing. And just this last year, Google searches on phrases such as the end of the world or how close are we to the apocalypse, those searches were at an all-time high. And, and man has always been curious about his future. He's tried his best to predict it, uh, even speculate what it might hold. And this is no recent phenomenon. It's been this way throughout man's history. Even way back in 1870, there was a bishop with the Church of United Brethren who heard a college, uh, a college president make this statement, we live in an age of wonders, said the head of the college, and I believe the day is not far off when men will fly in the sky like birds. Well, this bishop took offense, you know, that a college president would say something like that. After the conference, he went up to him and sort of mildly rebuked him and said, sir, that's really a borderline blasphemous statement because the Bible says the gift of flight is strictly reserved for the angels. But that bishop's name was Milton Wright, who just so happened to have two sons by the name of Orville and Wilbur. <laughs> Three decades later, at Kitty Hawk, they flew. And so the future, uh, maybe a question that has been asked recently more than at any other time is this question, are we living in the last days? How close are we to the return of Jesus Christ? These are questions that have been on our minds of late. But let me tell you something, more than the, the future is concerned with what, if you want to know the future, listen, the future, it's all about knowing who. Amen. Not so much a what, as much as it is knowing a who. You say, what do you mean? Well, the prophet Isaiah, listen to this, Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. So if the future is something that you're concerned about, then listen, the future is not a matter of you knowing what as much as it is an issue of you knowing who is in control of the future. You know, the Bible says that God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He's omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere at the same time. He's omnipotent. That means that he has all power. And so an omniscient God knows precisely what is just up ahead in our lives. An omnipresent God is already there. Have you ever thought about that? That the future really is, God's not concerned or worried about the future because he's already there. And as an omnipotent God, he's in control of all of it. And so why should we worry about the future? Why should you worry about circumstances in your life individually when you know the one who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, 
and who's in control of it all. So this ninth chapter of Daniel then is a passage that deals with the future. And specifically, it deals with the future of Israel and the way that Israel fits in the overall redemptive plan that God has for humanity. It's a prophecy known as the 70 weeks. Not weeks in the sense of days, but weeks in the sense of years or prophetic years. Literally, it says 70 sevens or 70 seven-year time periods in which God will accomplish some very important things as far as Israel is concerned and as far as his redemptive plan is concerned. And so it was revealed to Daniel in his day that God had a specific plan in which the Messiah would come and deal decisively with sin, even though it meant that Messiah would be cut off in the process. Times of tribulation would both precede and follow Messiah's coming. The nation of Israel, the Jews in particular, will experience tribulation. And yet God has determined how the end will come. And Daniel is shown here how God is in control of it all. And no matter what would happen in the world around Daniel, God was to be trusted. And there's a word for us in these times also. No matter what happens in the world around us, God is to be trusted. His plan is coming to fruition just as he said it would. So if you've got your Bible open there, I want you to read with me beginning at verse 24. Verses 24 through 27 of Daniel chapter 9 record this prophecy that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks, the prophecy of the 77s or 70 weeks. And notice that this is the angel Gabriel who's speaking to Daniel, verse 24, and says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, what you have in these verses is the prophecy, Daniel's 70 weeks. Another way of looking at this is this is God's prophetic clock as far as Israel is concerned. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, God's prophetic clock. Daniel is told when the countdown toward the end is going to begin. And it all has to do with the word that goes out to build and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice a few things from these verses, some of which will be review, 
so if you're joining us for the very first time, you know, and you're like, what in the world is he talking about this morning? Don't worry, I'm going to try to offer a little bit of explanation to help provide you with some context as to where we are in our study of Daniel. Uh, notice first what was foretold by the angel Gabriel. Now this whole prophecy comes as an answer to a prayer that Daniel had been praying in the first part of the chapter. Daniel had been burdened over uh, Judah. The Jews were in captivity. The 70 years of captivity were coming to a close. Uh, They had been in captivity because of their sin and their disobedience. And Daniel had been reading in the prophet Jeremiah at how at the end of 70 years, God would visit his people. He was going to allow them to return back to their homeland. So in other words, God was not through with Israel. That's something that Daniel discovers as he's reading over the prophetic text. And so he offers this prayer of repentance in chapter 9. And in response to his prayer, God sends the angel Gabriel with a specific message to Daniel. In answer to Daniel's prayer. And that answer is this prophecy of the 70 weeks. It all has to do with Israel's future. And so he mentions that there's a specific period of time that's marked out by God, 77s. These 77s are decreed. That word decreed translates a Hebrew word that means to be cut out. And the idea is that the time period has been cut out by the predetermined purpose of God. God has set aside a block of time in which he's going to accomplish some things as far as Israel is concerned. And as far as his redemptive plan is concerned. And so what you should notice then is that this prophecy is directly related to the Jews and to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, It's concerning the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. The events of the prophecy, they don't center around events that happen in Babylon or some other Gentile nation for that matter. But Israel is the focal point here, and Daniel is being told that God has not forgot his chosen people. He's not forgotten the Jewish nation. But instead, he's, he's cut out of the calendar of a period of time in which he's going to do something for Israel. It's as if God were saying, Daniel, I'm not finished with your people yet. I still have a plan, and I want to show you what I'm about to do. And so that plan would center around these 77s or 70 weeks. Uh, You say, well, what's what's the significance of that number? Well, keep in mind, Daniel has been burdened over Israel's sin. Israel was in captivity for 70 years because of 490 previous years of their disobedience. You see, according to Mosaic law, every seventh year, the Jews were to observe the Sabbath year. The seventh year was the Sabbath year. During the Sabbath year, they weren't to plow their fields. They weren't to plant their fields. They weren't to harvest their crops. But they were to allow the land to have its rest every seventh year. Well, for 490 years, the Jews had disregarded God's word as far as the Sabbath year was concerned. And so because of that, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says that God uh, raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his people. He carried the Jews off to Babylon where they were held in captivity for 70 years. It would be uh, one year for every Sabbath year that they had neglected, 70 total years. So as Daniel's been praying, he's been burdened over Israel's history of disobedience. 
490 years of disregarding the Sabbath year, 70 years of captivity, that's what's on his mind. But the answer that God gives him, really it's, it's an answer of hope. Because where he's been concerned with the previous 490 years of Israel's sin, God's going to show him something about his own faithfulness in the coming 490 years. And the application that we draw from that is that oftentimes we're so concerned about things we've done, where we've been, how we've lived, even decisions we've made in the past that we live to regret. But let me tell you something. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've confessed your sin, your sin has been forgiven. God's not only dealt with your sin by burying it in a sea of forgetfulness, but he's also given you a future. And that's something that this prophecy really points to and reminds us of, of all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Well, what is it that specifically is foretold by the angel Gabriel here in this passage? Well, notice to begin with, the completing of Israel's redemption. In the coming 490 prophetic years, or 70 weeks, uh, God would work in such a way whereby he would complete Israel's redemption. Now, you'll notice there are six objectives that are mentioned there in verse 24. The 70 weeks have been determined by God for Israel, for the city of Jerusalem, in which he's going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy place. In other words, uh, during this time frame, when it's all said and done and the smoke clears, God will have decisively dealt with sin and we, he will have ushered in everlasting righteousness. The first three of those uh, objectives deal with God dealing with Israel's sin. The second three deal with future righteousness that's going to be inaugurated. And so all of this, what I want you to see is that all of this is going to be accomplished once the 77s are complete. This is what God will have accomplished. By the way, God has to deal with sin, but God's not just concerned in dealing with sin. He wants to usher in righteousness upon the earth. It's not enough for my sin to be forgiven. God, God's got to give me righteousness, which by the way, in Jesus Christ, he's already done that. And so there's a sense in which uh, all of these objectives in verse 24 have been achieved by Jesus Christ, and spiritually, this is true of you as someone who's in Jesus Christ. Your sin has been decisively dealt with. It was dealt with at the cross. Righteousness has been ushered in spiritually because the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to you as a believer. All the righteousness of heaven has now been credited to your account as someone who has faith in Jesus. Now, so spiritually, this, this has happened. However, there is a literal, future, tangible fulfillment of this prophecy in which God is going to deal with the sin of Israel. Israel is going to be saved one day. And righteousness, everlasting righteousness, is going to be ushered in upon the earth. And that points to the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ, men and women. By the way, isn't that what we long for when we look at government today? All of us are so burdened when it comes to the government. You look at policy and you look at character issues and all of that. All of that greatly disturbs us as people of faith to see the shape that things are in nowadays as far as the government's concerned. There is no perfect government of man. There is no human government that's going to usher in perfect righteousness and justice. However, one day, 
perfect righteousness is indeed going to be ushered in the halls of government when the king himself rules and reigns over the governments of men from Jerusalem. And Jeremiah 23 talks about that day. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And that's pointing to that future day when Jesus Christ returns from heaven and he returns to the earth and establishes his government upon the earth. And folks, that day is quickly approaching. So righteousness is going to be ushered in once God has dealt with sin Objectives five and six, he's going to seal up both vision and profit, which means once these 77s are complete, God will have perfectly fulfilled all uh, prophecy. He will have kept all of his promises. And objective six, a, a, a holy place will be anointed. This is reference to a holy of holies or, or, or a future temple from which Christ is going to reign and rule. It will be the, the, the place of his throne in his kingdom. If you ever wondered what the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel were talking about, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of that millennial temple, and it's recorded in the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. So all of this is just, it, Daniel's being shown this, verse 24 sort of serves as a summary statement of all that God's going to accomplish once the 77s are over. So that's the completion of salvation or Israel's redemption. That's the first thing that's foretold by Gabriel, and then the second thing is the construction of Jerusalem. When will the prophetic clock begin to tick? Well, in verse 25, uh, Daniel is told that it will all begin when a word goes out to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you, that happened in 445 B.C., when the Persian king Artaxerxes issued a decree in which Nehemiah was given official documentation from the government of Persia to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And you'll notice at the end of verse 25 that Daniel learns that the city is going to be rebuilt from the inside to the outside, but it's going to happen in a troubled time. You remember all of the opposition that Nehemiah was up against that we read about in the book of Nehemiah? All of that happens within this first, uh, the first seven sevens or 49 years. The city's rebuilt. The Jews are back in their land. The temple by that point had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel and the exiles. And so you get to about 396 BC and it's almost as if there is a prophetic lull or a hush or an intermission and in between the Old and New Testaments, you have what are known as the 400 silent years. There's no prophetic voice. In fact, the next prophetic voice is not going to emerge until John the Baptist. When John the Baptist begins preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's pointing people to the coming Messiah. He's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So basically, Daniel is told that from the word that goes out, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be seven weeks followed by 62 weeks, after which, listen, a prince, uh, an anointed one, a prince. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach Nagid. Literally, Messiah the king. There are going to be 69 weeks that transpire from the word that goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the presentation of Messiah to Israel as king, their true and rightful king. 
Did that happen? Let me tell you something, 483 years to the day that Artaxerxes' decree went out, 483 years into the future, you get to Palm Sunday, 33 AD. The time in which the Lord Jesus Christ makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. That was in fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter nine, uh, verse nine. Um, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, Israel, because your king is coming to you. Lowly, humble, riding on the back of a donkey. You read in the Gospels how that's exactly what happens on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, which, by the way, does that not seem strange to you, that Israel's king would first be presented to her riding on the back of a donkey, not on the back of a white stallion? In our mind, we think, man, if he's the king, why doesn't he just come on in with a white stallion? on the back of some type of majestic war horse or something? Why is it that he's being presented to Israel riding on a beast of burden? Listen, it's because of what he came to do in his first advent. The beast of burden then is a real picture of the suffering servant that Jesus had to be in order to deal with sin, in order to suffer and die and be executed on a Roman cross. Here's the one who's come to do the work that's necessary in order for sinful people like me and you to be saved. Someone says, is there work involved as far as salvation is concerned? Yes, but it's not work that's done by me or you. It's work that's done by Messiah. That's why Jesus in his dying breath says, it is finished. What's he talking about? The redemptive work that was necessary in order to secure the salvation of those who trust in him. But but what I want you to see, though, is just the, the, the specificity, how specific this prophecy is to the day, from when the word goes out from Artaxerxes to the presentation of the Messiah to Israel would be 483 years, 69 weeks. But here's the thing. Daniel is told that Messiah, he's going to be presented, but he's going to be cut off, and he'll have nothing. Four days after his presentation to Israel as Messiah, Jesus Christ was crucified, and he was rejected by his own. John says it this way in John chapter 1, he came into his own, but his own received him not. They rejected him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to them which believe upon his name. So Messiah is cut off. That's the word that's used there. Literally, it means he is executed. Messiah is cut off with nothing for himself. Or he's cut off. Some translations express it this way. He's cut off, but not for himself. The idea is Messiah has come to suffer. He's come to be executed like a common criminal, but not for himself, but for those he's come to save. They need to understand that Israel, at that point, they were looking for Messiah, but they were looking for him to come in on the back of a war horse. They were looking for Messiah to come and overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression and occupation. They were looking for Messiah to come in and be a political savior that they could rally behind, 
But that's not how Jesus came in his first coming. Instead, he's rejected. He's cut off. He's nailed to a cross. And so pay close attention then. Verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks. Or after the first seven and then the 62, after the total of 69, Messiah shall be cut off. And that word after is a very important word there. 69 of the prophetic weeks bring us to the presentation of Messiah to Israel, but within a week of his triumphal entry, he's betrayed, he's condemned, he's crucified, or he's cut off and has nothing. So all of this is foretold by the angel Gabriel. I want you to see something else, though. I want you to notice what is unforeseen to Daniel. Something is unforeseen to Daniel, something that is unforeseen by the other prophets of the Old Testament even. Up until this point, we've seen how God's program for Israel sort of encompasses these 70 weeks, 483 of which have already passed. From the word that went out to rebuild Jerusalem to the presentation of Messiah to the nation of Israel. And at the end, after the 69 weeks, Messiah is cut off and has nothing. But what about the final seven weeks? After the 69th week, Messiah is cut off. He has nothing. But you'll notice that the 70th week doesn't begin at that point. And what should stand out to you as you read this is that there's a gap between the end of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week that's mentioned in verse 27. And so this last prophetic week does not officially begin until another prince, a ruler who's mentioned in verse 26. Verse 27 says that he makes a strong covenant with many for one week, and that's Daniel's 70th week. But between the crucifixion and the last seven years, there's an unspecified amount of time, a time in which we are presently living, by the way, And it was something that was totally unforeseen by the Old Testament prophets. And the Apostle Paul actually talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but, but Paul refers to the church as being a mystery hidden from ages past. Somehow, in his providence, God would work in such a way whereby the Gentiles themselves would be able to be grafted in to his redemptive plan and purposes. And providentially, that only happened as Israel rejected her Messiah, thereby opening up a fount of salvation. There is a fount filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and Gentile sinners like us plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So the prophets of the Old Testament, though, they didn't see this. They didn't see things as we see them now. You know, we tend to look at years happening one right after the other. And you know, the older you get, the quicker it seems the years go by, right? You go back into the Old Testament, and and God gave the prophets of the Old Testament a preview of the future. They were given a glimpse into the future. They saw all that God was going to do through Christ, but his first coming and his second coming were merged together as the prophets saw it from their vantage point. Best way for me to describe this to you is if we were going to the mountains, and let's say we get on I-40, 
We go all the way up I-40, and we, we, we go through Hickory. And as you come out of Catawba County, you come into Burke County. And along about exit 104, mile marker 104 in Burke County, you're coming into Morganton, you're able to look into the distance and you see the mountain range, the Blue Ridge Mountains. You, you see the mountains just up over the distance, and that's really the first good glimpse that you see of the, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains on I-40. And from mile marker 104, it looks like it's just one big tall mountain range. But the closer you get to the Blue Ridge Mountains, let's say you get closer to the McDowell County line, 30 miles on up ahead, as you get closer to the, you're able to see, well, there's actually multiple ridge lines. You see a, a lower ridge line, there's a valley behind that, and then the taller peak behind that. Does that make sense? So the prophets of the Old Testament were looking into the future from mile marker 104. And they saw the big picture view of what God was going to do as far as Messiah was concerned. But it becomes obvious when Christ comes in his first coming, Messiah comes to be cut off but not for himself. After which there's a gap of time it would seem, there's a pause it would seem, and there's a fountain that's opened up to the Gentiles so that the church can be born at Pentecost and continue for at least 20 centuries, even up until our present hour. Is God finished with Israel? No, he's not. And I believe that's why this 70th week, it's still yet future to begin as the age of mystery, the church comes to a close and the 70th week of Daniel begins, also known in scripture as the tribulation period. Now let me ask you this question. You say, that all sounds so strange to me. Is there anything else in Old Testament you know, prophecy that sort of does sort of the same thing with this kind of gap of time that was unforeseen by the prophet? Yeah, what about Isaiah chapter nine, verse six? Great messianic verse. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. When Jesus came the first time, was the government upon his shoulder? The government nailed him to a cross. Are you tracking with me? But when he comes the second time, he's going to be the government. If you're looking for him to return on a war horse, he's going to return on a war horse according to what Revelation says when he comes the second time around. But he didn't do that the first time. Let me give you another example. That Zechariah prophecy I, I quoted a moment ago, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout Jerusalem, because your king is coming to you, righteous, humble, having salvation, mounted on a donkey. Was that fulfilled in the first advent of the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. It was fulfilled in his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday into the city of Jerusalem. But have you ever paid close attention to the verse that follows, that verse in Zechariah chapter 9? Listen to what verse 10 says. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. 
We know that didn't necessarily happen. Tangibly, literally, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. What did he? He ascended back to heaven, didn't he? Which, by the way, you ever wondered why the disciples were asking him the question that they asked him there in Acts chapter 1, just before he ascends back to be with the Father? They understood fully that Messiah was supposed to usher in a kingdom and rule and reign from Jerusalem. And that's why they ask him the question in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now's the time that you're going to usher in your millennial reign upon the earth. But Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't doesn't rebuke them for asking the wrong question. He just redirects their focus. He says, here's what I want y'all to be focused on. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So you want to know what the task of the church is? It's the Great Commission. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's being witnesses for Christ here in High Point and communities beyond and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that is the mission of the church until Christ comes again. But he is going to come again. After the events of Daniel's 70th week. Let me just mention one final thing and I'll wrap all of this up. What is it that's still future to us? We've seen what Gabriel foretold. What's unforeseen to Daniel. The gap between week 69 and week 70. But what is still future? And I believe that the events of verse 27. Where the prince of the people to come. Who makes a covenant with many for one week. Daniel's 70th week. This is still to come. And it's a time known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation period. And so what should stand out to you in this passage is that there are really two princes who were mentioned here. You've got Messiah the prince, Messiah the true and rightful king of Israel. But he's distinguished from the prince of the people who is to come, mentioned there in verse number 26. The people of the prince to come, they destroy the city. They destroy the sanctuary. Did you know that that happened in 70 AD, nearly 40 years after the crucifixion? General Titus of Rome and the Fourth Roman Legion laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And on the ninth of Av, according to the Hebrew calendar, Tishbaav, Titus absolutely leveled the city of Jerusalem and, and, and completely obliterated the temple. From 70 AD onward, the Jews were scattered. There were rebellions over the coming decades, but they were quickly put down by Rome. Uh, I think of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 AD. And there were a bunch of Jewish holdouts on top of Herod's fortress, Masada, that all committed suicide when they realized that there really was no defeating Rome and the tyranny of Rome. But I'm just simply saying, Listen, the Jews were not in control of the city of Jerusalem from 70 A.D. onward. That is, until the Six-Day War of 1967. Nineteen years before that, in the aftermath of World War II, May the 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn. 
And it really was a remarkable thing. Nothing like that had ever happened before, how a nation was born in a day. But the modern nation state of Israel was born in 1948. In 1967, the Jews seized control of Jerusalem. And as of yet, the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount, well, that's still a disputed piece of real estate. And so you ask me the question, do I believe that we're living in the last days? Technically speaking, the last days began when a decree went out of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So maybe a better question is, do you believe we're living in the last of the last days? And folks, I think all of the signs lead to the obvious answer. Matthew 24. The Jews... We're so proud of their temple, Herod's temple. The disciples were so proud of it. Matthew 24 opens, the, the disciples asked Jesus about the temple. Master, look at the buildings. They were enamored with the buildings. And Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, first couple of verses, you see all these things? He said, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. Literally that happened 70 A.D., when the people of the prince to come destroy the city and the sanctuary, just like Daniel said it would happen in Daniel 9, 26. But Jesus used that as an opportunity to teach his disciples about what they could expect as far as the end time was concerned. He's on the Mount of Olives, and this section of teaching is known as the Olivet Discourse. But he basically gives them several signs that will lead up to the end. And these signs are what Jesus calls the beginning of birth pains. And really, he mentions at least six signs there. What are those signs? Well, false saviors, wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes. Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus includes pestilences and plagues or pandemics. Persecution of believers, falling away, of false believers, the defection of some who had a loose affiliation with believers who may have named the name of Christ, but it was obvious that whenever the pressure got put on them, it was too much of a cost to pay, and so they defect, proving that they were false believers. But the global proclamation of the gospel, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, this gospel is going to preach, be preached to all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. And you know, we're living in some remarkable days where that's happening, where the gospel is being preached literally all over the world. And there are men and women who are in very difficult places sharing the gospel of Christ with unreached people groups, even now. Nameless to history, but they certainly will be celebrated in eternity for their efforts. But in verse 15, Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus quotes directly then from Daniel 9.27 about a future event known as the abomination of desolation three and a half years into Daniel's 70th week. And I think Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The man of sin is going to sit in a rebuilt temple upon the temple mount declaring that the whole world worship him. 
And that's the abomination of desolation. That's still a future event. You say, well, where's the church at that point? Where's the church in all of this? The church wasn't there during the events of the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. And I don't believe the church is going to be there during the last events of the seven years, the final week of Daniel's prophecy. I believe the next thing the church has to look forward to is rapture. 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 Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Folks, there's so much about prophecy that's hard to understand, and it's not for us to know all of the details about how it's all going to go down and that kind of thing. It's not something for you to be fearful about when you think about the future. Listen, I've heard Christian parents who've read all of this, and they, they, they're generally concerned. Young parents afraid to have children because of the shape of things. Folks, that's no way to live. That's not what God has in mind for his people. He wants you to have children. He wants you to enjoy your families and hold your families close. But let me tell you, prophecy is given to us so that we can be aware of the big picture. What's the big picture? The big picture is that God is saving a people for himself. The church is a part of it. Israel's a part of it. There's still a future for Israel. But Jesus Christ is coming again. And that's why you don't have to despair in your life as far as the future is concerned. Things that have happened in our country and the trajectory that our country is headed. Listen, don't let that discourage you to the point of despair. Be a faithful witness for Christ's sake. Point people to the hope of Jesus, the hope that you found as a believer in Jesus. And don't be surprised when things get tough in the world because Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus today, don't leave today without getting that issue settled. Repent of your sin. Believe that Christ died for you on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Lord and you will be saved. Parker's going to lead us in a song here in just a moment. I'll be here at the front. Some of our other pastors will be here. We encourage you to come if you have a decision to make today. We'd love to pray with you. You can reach out to us if you're online. Lord, thank you for your word, your prophetic word, and how it gives us hope as your people. May we live our lives with confidence. For Jesus' sake, amen.